So we're in the book of Mark, and we have, uh, yeah, what we saw last week was there's a, a high uh, rate of usage of the word in Mark's gospel, of the word that comes into the English as immediately, immediately. It's not so much Mark's purpose to tell a day-by-day detailed story of the whole of Jesus' life. He's really giving a, a, uh, a, a Sparknotes version of Jesus' life. He skips enormous parts. He doesn't include huge sermons, and in fact, even when he says immediately, he doesn't actually literally in the very Western uh, 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 way that we might write down history, immediately doesn't mean, and then the very next thing that happened was, but his meaning is that, and then the pace picked up and we go on. So last week we saw a jam-packed beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as we read in one verse 1. We saw that he was uh, foretold by the prophets and John the Baptist. We saw that he was baptized and the voice of the Father came from heaven declaring, this is my son, in him I am well pleased. And then he was tempted by the devil in the desert over whom he was victorious. And we sort of saw this this picture that what Mark wants us to see when he keeps calling him son of God and Messiah or Christ, uh, the, the big picture that he's painting is Jesus as king. The coming king who is, who is royal, who is divine, who is human, who is powerful, who has authority. And so we saw the testimony from the Old Testament scriptures, the testimony from the Father. And even then we sort of saw him in this Greek-Roman context, which is where Mark's writing to. Christians who are under persecution in Rome, many of whom being thrown into the Colosseum to battle wild animals and whatnot, they are, they're hearing the story of Jesus, who, who as it were steps into the Colosseum with Satan, and, and at his weakest, while he's fasting, while he's hungry and out in the desert alone, and Satan at his strongest come head to head and Jesus comes out victorious. He did not give an inch to Satan's temptation. And so then he comes out of that glorious battle against the devil in temptation, and he starts preaching, and he starts his ministry all through Galilee. Now, the baptism and the temptation happened down near Jerusalem, and he's walked up now, up very north to Galilee, to the uh, area of Nazareth where he was uh, raised, and now he's going to begin his, his uh, ministry. Now, we're going to go through from verse 14 through to verse 34. And being a larger chunk than what we would usually take, uh, I'm going to read bit by bit as we come to the sections instead of doing a huge reading to begin with. But we're going to see Jesus preaching the gospel, that is the king's own announcement. Then we're going to see uh, that the king gathers an army as he collects some disciples together. Then we're going to see the king mighty in battle as he uh, uh, teaches with authority, he throws out a demon from a demon-possessed man, and he heals many. And these are all Mark's way of showing that Jesus really is the Son of God, and he has the authority over every realm of life that he, just as he claims. So can you look now to verse 14? We will begin our reading. This is the gospel of Mark, inspired by his spirit and beneficial for the upbuilding of the church. It says this, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. 
it's my habit to take texts apart slowly and deeply, and I want to spend a series on these few verses, but time does not allow us, nor does Mark's purpose in writing this. He doesn't want us to preach Mark like we might preach Matthew and just spend lots of time on this. He wants us to move quickly in the structure of Mark. This is just a, a transition verse. You're going to have a whole bunch of, not our, our humanly added numbers of chapters and verses, which are helpful, but in Mark's original structure, there's sort of um, a, a section and then a, a transitionary few verses. And then another big section and then some transition verses. And those 14 and 15 here are just transition verses. But they're so jam-packed. What we see here is that Jesus is coming. Right off the back of that battle with Satan, the very first thing that he does is preach. Jesus was a preacher. He was a traveling preacher. He was a proclaimer of the word of God. God had, as many preachers have said, God had one son and he made him a preacher. And that was Jesus, proclaiming the gospel of God. That is, as we said last week, the gospel is not another list of deeds. The gospel is not another uh, uh, list of commandments. The gospel is, by, by, its, by its very essence, a proclamation of something that is certain, either because it's already done or because it's going to happen. In other words, what makes it good news, and that's the literal translation of the word gospel, what makes it good news for you and me is not that we have to do something or that God is going to account what we have done, but that God has done something and will do something in the life of Jesus that is certain, that is final, and that is finishing the work that needs to be done for our salvation. That's why we, that's exactly what we just heard in, from the London Baptist Confession of Faith. Jesus is proclaiming something that is being done by God. And we have to ask then, <clears throat> what does this look like? What is the, what is the good news? We, we probably learned in Sunday school the four points that you have to say if you're going to share the gospel with somebody. Well, in Jesus' mindset, what was the very content of the good, of the best good news that the world could hear? And this is so fitting coming up to Christmas time. And this is so fitting in such a globally horrendous year. What was the good news that Jesus, born from the Virgin, uh, anointed with the Holy Spirit, uh, testified by the Father, now, now riding on, this, uh, on this, this powerful horse that is really not glorious, but, but of his own authority breaking into the world. What's the good news that he has to tell people? And it's this. It's there in verse 15. In red, if you've got one of the, the red-letter Bibles, the very words of Jesus, the first words coming out of his mouth in the Gospel of Mark, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the Gospel. He's saying here, the time is fulfilled. Now, this, this could mean, uh, 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 there's lots of different ways to explain, but really what he's saying is, the clock has struck 12. It is time up. We don't, there is no longer waiting the good news is that Jesus is not coming saying, I have even more to tell you about the Messiah that's coming. I have even more uh, preparatory work to do before the kingdom comes. The good news is that all of that waiting for thousands of years since Adam fell in sin, taking us with him, for, for hundreds of years since the last prophet from the first has been proclaiming a coming king and kingdom to bring salvation and redemption. Jesus is saying, it's all done. There's no more waiting. I have it here for you. And we, 2,000 years after this fact, are not, are not simply hearing that it's, it's coming or that it's arriving, but friends, that it is here in Jesus. It has been well established. We are, by faith, in 
the kingdom. And that really raises the next question. What is the kingdom of God? This is one of the top questions I recommend you do not ask YouTube or Mr. Google. There is just so much confusion, ignorance, or intentional deception and misunderstanding here as to what the word of God means when it says the kingdom of God. And there's so much pitting the kingdom against the gospel. They're saying that the gospel is about how Jesus dies, but the kingdom is about how, how Jesus rules, and they're so entirely different, and one is sort of marked by the cross and atonement, and the other is marked by spiritual gifts and power and, and things like that. Well, today we see that Jesus is preaching the gospel, and the content of the gospel is that the kingdom has come. They are married together. They are not precisely the exact same thing, but they are so married together. In Jesus' mind, the best news that he can proclaim to people is this, that a new ruler is here. We saw last week, saw last week how Satan is the, the, the prince of the power of the air, that he really was in, in much control over the politics, over the religions, over the cults, over the foreign armies. All of these things were, were at his beck and call. And so Jesus had said, uh, if, if, if you're going to come in and plunder a man's house, you need to tie up the strong man first. We saw him do that in the desert. And now Jesus is coming saying, there is a new ruler, there is a new king, and I'm coming to break into the world to save and redeem the world. That kingdom promised from all of the Old Testament about a, a king who would come and die, a king who would come and rise, a king who would come and be himself perfect, not fallen like all of the kings that let the Israelites down so often, a king that would come with full authority, and full anointing of the Spirit, that king is here to do everything the Old Testament said he would do, including shedding his blood for sinners. So the kingdom is arriving. But if, if you were to just be told that, that a cosmic, eternal, divine, infinite, powerful, holy, righteous kingdom was going to break forth like a, like a star colliding with earth. If that kingdom was about to break forth, you could ask the question, why in the world does it need to be announced? If it's coming, you know it. You don't need to be informed that you've just been struck by a bus, except unless you're in the coma waking up. No one needs to tell you that. You know when it happens. And so we have to ask the question, if, if the whole Old Testament is being fulfilled in this explosive moment of the powerful gospel in Jesus, the eternal king, the son of God, why does he need to say anything about it? And it's because it's coming in a way that is so unexpected. It's coming in a way that is secret, and we're going to see this next week, this big, why Jesus keeps on shushing people when they know who he is. Uh, it comes in a way that is through suffering, and that's going to take up a lot of the preaching of Jesus about the suffering in the kingdom for us, and it's going to come in a way that is slow. Like a seed, Jesus will say, a mustard seed planted in the ground doesn't blow up the next day to be the biggest tree. It takes time. It slowly grows, outgrows other things, casts shadows onto other things, and pushes them out of the way. But this is the kingdom. And then we have to ask, <clears throat> if this is Jesus preaching that the kingdom is here, we have to ask how we become a part of that kingdom. Or, or what Jesus, I get, what's his application? So every good sermon has some applications at the end. Here's Jesus, this one-sentence sermon. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. What's your part to play? 
But as we saw from John the Baptist, quoting Isaiah and Malachi, your job, the job of the first century Christians, is to prepare the path for God to come. And we saw that Jesus does not come as king to rule in an earthly palace. He comes to reign in our hearts. That is what he makes new. That is where he rules from as king. And so your job, as someone who wants to receive all of the benefits of the kingdom, as someone who wants to receive the salvation that's coming in the king, the forgiveness that's coming in the king, the victory that's coming in the king, if you want that, you have to repent of sin and believe the gospel. Paul said this in Acts 20, verse 21. He said that I have preached to both Jew and Gentile the gospel to repent towards God, meaning turn from your sin, acknowledge your sin as being committed against the eternal God, deserving of eternal death. Confess that. Turn from that. Come to Jesus as Lord over your life and believe that his death as your king can save you and bring you into right standing with himself. And so that is Jesus' application. Repent, believe the gospel, and you will enter into the kingdom. That's the first two verses. That's just intro. That's just transition. Now we can start the sermon. So in verse 16 then, Jesus, this new king who's arrived, much like Saul in the Old Testament, much like David just after him in the Old Testament, as soon as they're anointed king, They start going around collecting some followers, getting together a bit of an army and a band of men who are going to be their mighty men, their their faithful crew who's going to look after them, serve them, fight their battles with them, and we see Jesus do the same thing. Verse 16, passing along the Sea of Galilee, an enormous sea, a beautiful sea, a a, a very popular fishing place. Uh, When when the Romans come through to destroy Israel uh, in AD 70, they count 250 fishing boats that they commandeer and take to use as war vessels. So so 250 fishing boats in this lake, you're not talking like a little creek. And there he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother. So Simon will become Peter and Andrew uh, is his brother. He saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Well, that makes sense. You don't do that if you're carpenters. And Jesus said to them, not if you're a good carpenter, I should say, and Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately, there's that word again, immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. These guys are the ones that Jesus would call the sons of thunder. They were the ones who in their mercy prayed to Jesus to send down fire from heaven on the, on the villages that didn't accept them. So here's these guys. And they were in their boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them and they left their father, Zebedee, in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. So here we see that this king is, is going around, and we might ask lots of questions. That like, how, What's the application here for us? How often should we feel that God is calling us to do something and then drop everything, throw your badge and your, your clipboard at the bus and just walk out and say, I read it in the Bible. Is that, is that what we're supposed to do? Or, or what makes sense here? Why did these men stand here, see a stranger, and just listen when he said, follow them? They don't sound smart. And there doesn't seem to be much reason here. And, and I'll say, I think there is reason, and we'll say that. But, but first of all, what Mark wants us to see is that as the anointed king, 
he is as authoritative, yet more, than, if, than an, if an earthly king with a crown on his head, a band of soldiers around him, marches into your town and picks out the best fighting young men, if he says, I want them for me, you have no authority to refuse him. It is your duty as a kingdom member, as somebody who, who owes obeisance to the king, to say, we like them, we wanted them, they're good for our town, but for the kingdom and for the king, you can have them. And it's also the duty of the young men to consider that as a high privilege to be called on into the king's service. So what Mark wants us to see here, first and foremost, is not how to evaluate decision-making in the kingdom, but when Jesus calls as the king, he gets what and who he wants. And who he wanted was apparently these guys. Fishermen. There's a lot of, uh, even sermons I'll hear and they'll say, you know, fishermen, they were poor, they were dumb, they didn't have much going on. These guys, that's not the case. These guys were lucrative businessmen. They were wealthy because they're fishing in Galilee and they had a successful business. They had hired servants and men with them. They were doing very well. And, it, and they, they, they were in the, I guess, the Wall Street of Nazareth, which is really not much. That's like, you know, the Wall Street of, of Logan. But there they are. They're on Galilee. They have a business. It's doing somewhat well. And they leave that. That's, that's showing a sacrifice. That, that's genuine. They're seeing the, the, the worth of following Jesus. And a couple of things are, play, uh, are at play here. They have already known Jesus for, for up to many months. They were actually there, at least some of these four men were there, we don't know exactly which ones, were there when Jesus was baptized, and John cried out, there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then some of them followed Jesus a bit and asked some questions, and Jesus hadn't formally called them, but he had said, why don't you come along, check out what's going on, see what you think. And so they had seen some other miracles. They had seen some other things. They knew who he was claiming to be and who John had said he was so that by the time he actually comes and approaches them, they know who's calling them. And he says to them, follow me. Come and be, and this is the, the Jewish background of this, the rabbis would, would be those who were schooled in the Old Testament law, who, who knew the teachings and the traditions of the teachers and and they would actually have many applications of young men who wanted to be teachers or rabbis themselves, or uh, where they would have to start is to be disciples or students of the rabbi. And so you'd put in your application, you'd cross your fingers, you'd hope for the best. Many would try, very few would be chosen. But here's Jesus doing just precisely the opposite thing, not waiting for those who would come to him, but going out and finding those that he desires for his service. So he goes to them and says, follow me, that is the reasoning behind their, their enthusiasm to get up, follow this king, enlist in his army, see what will happen. And of course, they would have had some mixed motives. They had many confusions, which Mark is going to show us through his whole book, but nonetheless, they were uh, obedient to his call. So the king is collecting an army. Now look to, look to verse 21. This is... This is where the, the pace starts picking up and where the, the controversy begins to build. Verse 21. And they went into Capernaum. This is a very wealthy, very, one of the oldest towns in the area. Uh, uh, very well to do. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. 
Now, the synagogue was a, uh, it, don't, don't get that confused with the temple. The temple was the central uh, in Jerusalem, the glorious, golden, beautiful place where all the, the center of Jewish worship would happen. The synagogue was actually uh, uh, smaller, local, what we, we, it's really where we got the pattern for local churches, is that the, uh, the, the, the Jews in all of their towns, if, if you had at least, you had to have minimum, 10 uh, men who were Jews over the age of 13, they could form a synagogue. And what they would do is they would have copies of the Old Testament, the Bible to them. They would have uh, people who would travel to them and teach Sabbath to Sabbath. Men from that synagogue would then form the eldership in the community who would judge and and, uh, uh, distribute justice. And so uh, they had started one in Capernaum, of course. It was quite well to do. We have uh, archaeological uh, 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 knowledge of what that was like. And so Jesus goes into there as a traveling rabbi and says, why don't I teach? You're looking for somebody to teach. Here's everybody sitting down and Jesus takes in this humble little stone basalt building, takes up a scroll and begins to teach. And here's their response. Verse 22. They were astonished at his teaching. This word for astonished, when looking this up and it's coming out in certain ways, people are saying this literally means smacked out of their face. They listened and their minds were blown, if you want a modern version of it. They were not expecting the, the roller coaster. I don't know if you've ever been on a roller coaster that was way too fast for how loose your face muscles are. And the people behind you are just wearing your saliva as your, your eyeballs are, are dried out of every bit of moisture they have. That is the experience. Maybe you've gone skydiving and you think it was a great, beautiful, tranquil experience floating to the earth and you watch the video back later and you look like a pit bull with its face screaming back and, 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 and that's them. They're sitting down for another lazy Sabbath to hear some opinions and they sit on down. This is what we do. We're religious folk. And it explodes out of them. The king is now holding his own covenant documents. Maybe not screaming at them, but that's what it felt like striking them in a way they had never experienced. And over coffee afterwards, they started talking. They said they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. So here's Jesus and his teaching. He's not, like the other scribes, he's not coming in with a big list of footnotes and references and opinions and saying, here's, here's what I sort of think and, and maybe it's this and commentators say this and I looked up Mark, Matthew Henry and John Calvin but I kind of disagree and, and there you go. There's, there's my opinion, have a good week. Jesus came in, not, not even like the Old Testament prophets who said, thus saith the Lord, which is the highest authority you can claim. He simply spoke. I don't need to quote anybody. I don't need to say, thus saith the Lord, I am the Lord, hear me roar. And as he spoke, he spoke with structure and with truth and with love and an urgency that they had not known before. Because now the king was here, the kingdom was coming, and it needed to be announced. And that kind of preaching, that kind of preaching does not come without response from the devil. Verse 23, immediately, again that word, there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. Now you need to hear or look into this and wonder, what is the state of the religion of the day? What is the state of the preaching they're used to when a demon-possessed man is a part of the church membership? When he sat comfortably through all the other sermons, 
He doesn't mind the, the other scribes coming in and talking about the, the Old Testament scriptures because they missed the point. They haven't been pointing to the king. They don't know the gospel or the kingdom. And so here the demon can sit, possessing this man, trapped in his own sin, through which he gave the opportunity for the demon possession, and he's fine. He has no problem. But now he cried out, verse 23. He cried out, What have you to do with us? Jesus of Nazareth, the word for cry is scream. He is shrieking. I'm not going to impersonate that, but he is shrieking in fear. Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. There is, there is so much fear here. There is so much to unpack, but, but there is also honor, respect, not, not in the kind that would, that would really give to Jesus the glory he's due, but he's submitting. His face is in the dirt if, as it was. His knees are bent. He is crying for his life. When Jesus comes, the, the, the enemy darkness begins to be pushed back, and they don't like that. Jesus comes in, and, and he had gone to the desert and battled with the devil, and he tied him up and put him down, and now he's starting to work on all of his minions, all of his, on all of his soldiers, and, and he's going to battle with them. What we need to know, and this is clear through the epistles, I'm not just taking some strange application, all false religion and all false gospels, whether it's kind of Christian cults, or whether it's uh, uh, very confused Christian, entirely different religions, maybe they claim to be Orthodox Christians like Catholics, or maybe it's just pagan religions, they have at their core the teachings of demons. And they have empowering all of their false miracles and behind all of their false signs and wonders and priests and teachers, lies of demons and empowerment of demons. Paul says this frequently in his epistles. And so it's, it should not just be a strange occurrence. This should be expected. What we're seeing here is false religion. In false religion, here's the demon screaming on behalf of the kingdom of the devil. When he says, have you come to destroy us? Ah, representative of the kingdom, not because there's many inside of this man. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. There's, there's so much in here. That one of the th realizations is that the devil... And the demons have fairly good theology. It doesn't land in repentance and faith and obedience and whatnot, but they have good, good knowledge of God. They see Jesus. They fear and tremble in a way that James will later say, why aren't you more like the demons, Christians? Because demons are at least fearful when they hear of the Lord and they are in their sin and evil. You, though, you, you, you're not mournful, you're happy, you don't mind you think a knowledge of God is enough? The demons tremble. You ought to do more. Repent. Well, here they are. They're, they're trembling. They have that knowledge. And, and he knows that as the Holy One of God, in holiness, as we just sung, a holy God must destroy evil. They know, he says, are you come to destroy us? Holy One, I'm evil. I'm sinful. You're holy separation of, of God and sin is the necessary result of God's holiness. You and I, let, as I know we're, we're good, total depravity believers. When we read this, we know which side to fall on. But let's remind ourselves, we're over with the demon guy, not with Jesus in our own standing. 
Until Jesus saved you, until his death was accounted as yours, until by faith, uh, until by the Spirit you placed your faith in Jesus, you were a lot more characteristically like the demon. You and I, if we had actually been switched on, should have, in our unregenerate, unsaved state, been crying, do not destroy me, God. You holy me sinful, do not destroy me, please. Well, for those of us who have, by Jesus' death, been made righteous, we we don't need to fear that. But we need to realize that the only reason we are not destroyed is because this holy one of God became himself a curse, destroyed, killed, crushed on the cross for us. He cried out on the cross that that same uh, fear and rejection that the demon was crying out because on the cross he became cursed and separated from the Father. And in that lies our whole salvation. There is why we can look back and read these stories and be thankful. This is why we can learn of the gospel and, and not fear like the demon feared, but we can have security and safety and joy in forgiveness because of Jesus. We can look back and instead of thinking, this king, my enemy, will destroy me, we can look and say, my victorious king in valor. He made me righteous. I am glad I do not have that end for me. Of course, if you have not had faith and repented, you can't say that. But Jesus says this. Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. Jesus does not want and does not need publicity from the demons. He doesn't need them preaching about who he is. That would make his case very hard to believe later on when he says, I'm not, I'm not doing this in the power of Satan. I'm not in cahoots with the demons. If then they could say, well, what's with all your heralds being demons? What's with them all helping you out? They're preaching your story, and then you come, and you're saying you're not in cahoots. So they've, you know, they're paying for your campaign, Jesus. This looks odd, and so Jesus silences them. He knows, that, and this is what we'll talk about next week, the knowledge of his sonship, the knowledge of who he is will be confused and misunderstood if it does not come at the right time. Look at verse 26. Here's the, here's the showdown. He, he commands him with a word, verse 26, and the unclean spirit convulsing him, he, he shook the man violently, and crying out with a loud voice came out of him, and they were all amazed. Of course they were. You come in expecting a boring Sabbath meeting. You're probably dozing off in the back, back, back chair. You're, you're, you're doodling in your little scribe. You're not really listening at all. And then a demon shrieks, opposes the teacher, and the teacher casts him out. That is a day in the synagogue. <coughs> and so they were all amazed. And they started questioning among themselves, saying, what is this? What is this? What did we just see? How do we categorize this? Is this part of our new liturgy? Is this a Sabbath regular? What is this? They say, a new teaching and with authority. This was the point. This is the point of Jesus casting out demons. Not a magic show. It's so that through that power, they would see the teaching that he's bringing. And so they say rightly, or Mark at least recounts rightly, a new teaching with authority He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once, his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And so then we we come to this next section. Jesus, 
is the king who's, 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 who's coming in the fulfillment of time. He's the king who is, who is collecting his army, his, his men around him. He is the king who is authoritative, and Mark wants us to see, authoritative in teaching, authoritative over the spiritual realm, and authoritative over sickness. Let's look here at verse 29. And, here again the word, immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law, just a quick throw out here for the, for the Catholics, uh, Simon is Peter, that is their first pope. He has a mother-in-law. Last time I checked, that means he had a wife. The first pope, in their view, had a wife. Uh, which, if you know anything about Catholic dogma, is a real bullet to the foot. Uh, but anyway, here's Peter, who has a wife and a mother-in-law, and, and because we, we know also historically this is a big house. Uh, he, his whole family lives here. They found the foundations of this very house. Um, they, they, they're almost absolutely certain it's Peter's house. Multi-generation, multiple generations living there, um, expensive home. Here they are. Jesus goes over there with the four disciples. And his mother-in-law, Simon's mother-in-law, lay ill with a fever. And immediately they told him about her. And he came, this is Jesus, he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up and the fever left her. And she began to serve them. That evening at sundown they brought all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. That's a bit of hyperbole, but we can take by that the majority of everybody in the town was outside his door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Well, here we see this, this reality that as, as Jesus comes in, he is doing what nobody has ever done before. He's coming to those, of course, this, uh, they, were, they were a somewhat uh, developed civilization, but they didn't have even the symbols of paracetamol to kill fevers. They, they didn't have the, sim the simplest things to be able to kill infections. They didn't have microbiology and know about what bacterial infection is causing this fever that this mother-in-law is so sick, she cannot get up out of bed. And Jesus, with a touch, with a word, lifts her up, not, not just an ability to serve, not just an ability to walk around and hobble. He makes her well in a word. And, and, and here is what Mark is showing us, that this Jesus, king over all, the, the son from heaven coming down and applying his rule on earth is showing to everybody, the devil, the demons, the humans who listen to the word, and all those who have ever been afflicted by sickness, I think that will be all of us. Jesus has the authority in his person, his power, and his word. And so, it's, um, it's in, it's, you'll notice here it says, at evening they started bringing the whole, uh, all of the city to, towards Jesus for healing. This is because it was on the Sabbath. You weren't really allowed to do much work on the Sabbath, so they were, they were waiting for the evening to come when the sun just dipped below the mountains. That would mark the end of the Sabbath. They had all their sick waiting at the door on the carts, and as soon as the sun went down, they threw them down the, the street and ran up after them in the carts and got them to Jesus' door. They were furious. They were, they were, uh, uh, sorry, they were uh, furiously chasing this healing that Jesus came to give, and Jesus and his compassion healed them. He loved them. This, we sung this in the hymn last week, and we, we sing it in the, in the Christmas carol, that Jesus comes to apply the blessing far as the curse is found. 
in the Garden of Eden, we have to recognize this as biblical theologians. The curse is God's idea. The curse was God's doing. Sin was not God's doing, that was Adam. But the response to sin was the curse. The bringing in of sickness, the bringing in of enmity between the seed of the dragon and the seed of the woman, that, the the warfare, the death, the destruction, the suffering, was God's affliction. He could have, in that moment, wiped out Adam and Eve, left the human race gone, done, and dusted with. But he doesn't. He curses them, that, that every generation will live in, in this, this oppressed, afflicted, sick life. And, and we might think that, that that's a worse punishment, but it's not. Because God applied the curse so that enmity would rise for Jesus to come in and battle and take over. He afflicted with sickness so that what Jesus would bring in would be healing. He allowed for sin so that what Jesus could bring in is forgiveness. He allowed for enmity so that what Jesus would bring in is a kingdom of peace. And so here is Jesus meeting with his long-awaited foe that, that almost untouched has afflicted every one of his image bearers for millennia and he meets it and on every front he pushes it back showing to us he is this son of God. He does have authority to lift the curse wherever he pleases. And that is what he does. What we need to see here is I've just, I I can't tell you, I I don't even think I need to tell you. You've heard sermons on this text and texts like it, that that if, if you want healing and you want salvation from sickness, just come on down to Jesus. As long as it's not too hard, don't embarrass the healer. Just sicknesses that can't be seen, an earache, a slightly shorter leg, all those sorts of things. Come, bring it on, and and look what Jesus does, so we will do it. They even go, and this is blasphemous. Go with me to Isaiah 53, so that you can see it. They even go to Isaiah 53 to show that Jesus, in his death, in his atonement, promises healing for all Christians. Isaiah 53 is that that prophecy about the death of Jesus in our place, his ministry of lowliness and suffering, doing good but being oppressed and then dying for us. Matthew, here's where the confusion comes and the misunderstanding. Matthew talks about Jesus' healing ministry, lifting up all the, the afflictions of sickness, and he quotes Isaiah 53 verse 4, which says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Those words can, can be translated as sicknesses and diseases. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. So what they do is they'll, they'll take this and say, see, in Jesus' death, in his affliction of his stripes, in his bleeding, that was your sickness. And so now you don't need to live in sickness because Jesus lived in pain for you. But that's not what this verse means. This verse has not gotten to his atonement yet. This verse is talking about his good doing, and yet the people esteemed him as cursed. They hated him, though he went around lifting up people's sicknesses. The verse then that you may have well heard, misquoted, Isaiah 53 verse 10, um, that says, sorry, not verse 10, uh, verse 
Uh, here we go. Getting there. Five. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. <clears throat> what they will often quote is the next verse, which says, uh, "For uh, but by his... He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. So they'll say, you, look, Jesus healed everybody. He carried your sicknesses. By his stripes, you get healed. That's a misapplication. That's not how the New Testament uses those two verses. Matthew says, Isaiah 53, 4, is about his healing ministry. Then Peter will use, by his wounds we are healed, as an application of the cross to our soul's salvation. So I want you to know, when you hear that stuff, don't be tempted. Don't, don't hear, because, because if there's anything that people want, it's healing from suffering and sickness. And, and, and this is what's coming to our, to our conclusion and application now, that as, as we're realizing the, the work and the ministry of Jesus... He is not bringing a gospel of healing for all. All those who believe in the new kingdom, in the new earth and heaven, will have new bodies free from sickness. But in this life, that is not promised us. What is happening here is a display of Jesus' power. What he can do whenever he wants. Let's think of this in terms of it. closing now for application. Our very first point to consider. If Jesus has shown that the demon-possessed can be cast out in a word, that the, the, the sick can be healed in a single word, if he never lost that authority but only gained more and more authority as king as he went through his ministry, that means that you and I, if we have, and maybe it's mental, maybe it's emotional, maybe it's physical, if you and I are afflicted with sicknesses, we have to recognize he has the authority to remove it in a moment. And the application is not, therefore he will if you have enough faith. It is if this wise king can remove it all in a moment and chooses not to, though we pray for it, he must be doing something through it. He must be able to be trusted. He must be at, at least a little bit more wise than me and have a plan through my suffering through my sickness, and that we have to trust by faith. When we awaken in the new world, we will have perfect bodies. Until then, we suffer knowing that Jesus is our conquering king over our ultimate sickness, sin, hell, and death. Also, as we, as we think about this, let's ask ourselves, do you have a deeper knowledge of Jesus than surface-level demonic Faith that coasts you through life, knowing the words of Christianity, but ultimately sees you sent to hell, is the faith of demons. It is an enemy of your soul. It's, it's glasses that you've put on, because everyone else does, but, but to you they blind. They, they block out the light. Faith that does not know Jesus savingly is not saving faith. Martin Luther used to say that the Christian uh, faith is filled with possessive pronouns. There is difference between saying Jesus is Savior and Jesus is my Savior. He says that any demon can say the first, but only the true Christian can say the second. Have you, I'm talking to, to, to porn-addicted teenagers, to rebellious young adults, to, to afflicted and, 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 and uh, adulterous adults, to those who have cheated others out of business, to thieves, to the, to the swearing, to, the, to all sinners far and wide, have you 
looked to the rule and reign and death and resurrection of Jesus and made it by faith, by repenting and believing in him, your salvation? Have you grasped him to be your savior? And if not, today is the day of your salvation. Let's also realize that like those who are in the catacombs of Rome hearing this gospel first read when Mark wrote it to them, like those suffering first century Christians or like those who are in the very lifetime of Jesus, we can look around and see a lot that is negative. A lot of the, the, the effects of the fall and the curse and death and sin in our own lives, in the, our circumstances and in the world. But in the midst of everything, we can also see what there is to be thankful for. Salvation from sin, a kingdom that is working its way throughout the world to bring the world to Christ, all the other blessings and benefits that we have while we see the curse. Let us do Jesus the greater honor of looking to what, is, what there is to be thankful for and, and focusing on those things. And last, let us look over back to verse 15, back where we started. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. For every one of us, every time we encounter the gospel, preached, written, or heard, whatever it is, you need to think of that moment as a day of fulfillment, a moment of reckoning, which you cannot be assured that you will have again. If you hear the gospel and you draw back and you harden your heart and you do not believe, you need to uh, 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 tell yourself that this might be the last time you hear it. The time is up. All moments from here on out are not owed. They are grace. Today is the day of your salvation if you will believe. And it will be a day of remembrance for eternity if you reject it. Today's words will echo in your mind if you refuse Christ and find yourself at death's door without believing. So I, I implore you, as Jesus would, believe the gospel. Be saved. Join the community of those who are sinners but are justified in God's sight. As we finish here, let's, let's pray to God, our, our King, Jesus, our Savior. Father, there is so many things that we, we focus on and we look to and we're distracted by in this world, whether personal pursuits or other people's sins or what we're owed or preferences and ideals and worldly possessions. But God, I pray that today you would focus us to see what is ultimate, to see what is the apex under which everything else falls, which is that Jesus is authoritative and relevant and true for every aspect of our life. That whatever it is, whether it's our work, our politics, our economics, our, our family life, our spirituality, our morals, they all come under the Lordship of Christ. I pray that you would begin taking more and more of our lives that are still in rebellion, part of our lives that we, that we portion off and do not give to obedience to you. Would you take them, Lord? Would you break down those doors and own more and more of our lives that we would be more obedient? And I pray, God, for those that, that do not believe in you, who are here today, would they put their faith in you? Would they be willing to lay down their arms of rebellion and sin and, and, and denial and atheism, whatever it be? Would they believe in Jesus as their Savior to give you glory and them forgiveness? God, would you apply these truths deeper and deeper into our hearts as we seek to live for you this week by your Holy Spirit to your glory. And everybody said, Amen.